Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War, episode 31. Last time, the extraordinary partnership of the Soviets and North Koreans came under our microscope, as we learned of the extent to which Stalin seemed content to jeopardise Kim Il-sung's war effort in order to bring about the result that he wanted, the engendering of a conflict on the Korean Peninsula and the heavy involvement of the Western Chinese. Stalin's policy, as history tells us, would be successful, but Stalin plainly was not aware that in the course of dressing the Korean War up, 
he paved the way for his rivals to also achieve their own policy goals. Washington was also geared towards manipulating the circumstances of the war on the peninsula and directed their policy towards such an end, for the sake of developing the massive defence budget increases which only a terrible war could justify. Before consolidating their position and escalating the war though, the American forces under the UN banner first had to survive the onslaught of the North Korean People's Army. This they did, but largely because, as we learned last time, Stalin was consistently undercutting the effectiveness of the North Koreans by handing them contradictory limiting orders and reducing their capacity to strike effectively at the Pusan perimeter. In this episode we'll examine the American perspective of this struggle, where through July 1950 it seemed like touch and go for some tense moments. Incidentally, it was a message communicated by MacArthur to Truman that is most interesting. On the 19th of July, shortly after receiving it, the President presented to Congress what would be the first of several proposals to increase the defence budget. The President was paving the way for the policies to transform the United States into the arsenal of democracy. By the end of the month, American politics would be mostly reconciled with the idea of supporting this policy and of increasing their expenditure to match the dangers that Korea posed. Amidst such weighted developments, MacArthur planned for the next phase of his defence, the counterattack, and the Allies began to supply their armed detachments under the auspices of the United Nations. By the end of this episode, then, it should be clear that a new phase of the Korean War had begun. No longer on the back foot, with the North Korean People's Army having mostly run out of steam, the stage was set for the more infamous scenes of the Korean War, as Mao Zedong looked nervously on. Let's take you all to this critical month then in July 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by, guess what, 1956. 1956 is our Patreon exclusive series, but coming pretty soon in the month of September, you'll be able to have a free preview of the first two episodes of part two. Part two is the Suez Crisis, so if you're at all interested in looking at the Israelis, British and French and Americans awkwardly team up and not team up to invade Egypt, and watch Egypt react and win and also lose at the same time, then, yeah, that's a really bad explanation, but then you should definitely check out 1956. I really think you'll enjoy it, guys. We're almost wrapping up the first part, wherein the Hungarians make a very heroic but also tragic stand against the inevitable onslaught of the Soviets. It's been very well received. Those that have listened to it have told me that they've really enjoyed it, and maybe you're too overwhelmed by listening to two... Cold War stories at the same time, but if not, they are different enough that you won't be confused. Certainly when we start talking about Egypt and Suez and the French and British and everything else, it'll be definitely distinct from Korea. In any case, guys, this episode is brought to you by 1956, so if you are at all interested, do check it out by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. For $5 a month for the price of an overpriced coffee, you too could be listening to 1956 all of our exclusive series to come, and all the extra stuff that's already in the back catalogue. You'll also be doing me a huge solid, and you'll be helping to make history thrive. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash windoflowsyfails. But otherwise, guys, the song of the week this week is While They Were Dancing Around by Eddie Morton. It's a song released in 1914. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 31 of the Korean War. 
Brown went around to all the dancers in town, both every night or so. Little Pearl was his girl and she could always be found, wherever Johnny used to go. Any night at all, at a dance or ball, they were first out in the hall. Dancing around, they'd be dancing around. Oh, how he'd hold her, head on his shoulder. And oh, how he'd tease and he'd dip with his knees. He'd draw her to a corner and he'd feel a little squeeze while they were dancing around, all around, all around. They were the talk of the town. And when the band was playing, that hesitation you could hear her say. And the people would stay till the break of the day while they were dancing around. Girls around in the town all loved to dance with young Brown, but they all knew him well. She was there with a stare that said, go on if you dare, but you could hardly blame the girl. On the floor she'd stay, dancing night and day, just to keep them all away. Dancing around, they'd be dancing around. Oh, how he'd hold her, head on his shoulder, and oh, how he'd tease them. He'd dip with his knees, he'd drop her to a corner, and he'd feel a little squeeze while they were dancing around, all around, all around. They were the talk of the town. When the band was playing, that hesitation you could hear her say, that some sensation and the dance of the day till the break of the day, while they were dancing around, dancing around, they dancing around. Oh, how he'd hold her, head on his shoulder, oh, how he'd According to their pre-envisioned plans, the US contingency for responding to a northern invasion of the Korean Peninsula was always laid down in War Plan SL-17 as containing a fighting retreat to Pusan, establishing a secure perimeter, and then fighting back with an amphibious landing at Incheon to cut off the enemy supply lines and surround him in South Korea. The Incheon landings did take place on the 15th of September 1950, amidst great fanfare and expectations, and they would provide the devastating shot to the heart of the northern assault that MacArthur had hoped. In July though, mindful of the need to defend the precious little amount of land still in their possession, MacArthur was at the same time already thinking of an amphibious landing which would take the pressure off the Pusan perimeter and trap Kim's army down south. At this stage of the war, the merits of launching an amphibious landing were clear, though the process would have been immensely risky. The faster the North Korean People's Army advanced down south, the more urgent MacArthur's plan for a diversionary, outflanking amphibious landing seemed, especially to MacArthur himself. Despite their setbacks and slowdowns, the advance of the NKPA still seemed very fast indeed, and for a time in early July, MacArthur was adamant that the amphibious landing be launched as soon as possible, out of the expectation of the Northern Blitzkrieg, which was surely set to thunder down the peninsula and push the Allies into the sea. MacArthur devised such a landing, codenamed 
Blue Hearts, and planned it with desperation in mind. As early as the 5th of July, when Task Force Smith first encountered the Northern Forces, MacArthur was arguing for a landing at Inchon to counterbalance the sheer momentum which Kim's forces were expected to bring to bear. The 22nd of July, MacArthur said, would be the estimated date for this landing, as this was the date when the Northern Blitzkrieg was expected to have reached Pusan, smashed through the outer lines, and posed the gravest danger to the American position. Therefore, if you were wondering after listening to the last episode how the Allies responded to the Northern advance, then the answer, provided by MacArthur, was to move forward with the timetable of War Plan SL-17. Rather than wait for the moment when the North exhausted itself, as the plan had called for originally, MacArthur argued in the urgent state of affairs which July presented, that the War Plan's key point of a landing be greatly rushed ahead with. However, to MacArthur's certain chagrin, there was a further problem with his plan to land at Inchon by the 22nd of July. The North, while they initially seemed to bomb their way southwards, were simply not advancing fast enough to justify the landing at Inchon. Indeed, if the landing was made too early, then its effect would dissipate as the North Korean People's Army, not as overextended as the plan required them to be, just reinforced themselves at Inchon and pulled back from their advance to tackle the new Allied landing. To put it simply, a landing at Inchon required a certain state of affairs, either a panicked sense of urgency, which stated that the enemy were battering down the door of the Pusan perimeter and needed to be drawn off through some desperate measures, or, and this is what actually happened, the landing required an overextended, exhausted northern advance, which could be completely cut off after repeatedly smashing itself against the reinforced Pusan perimeter. It was thus one extreme or the other which would justify the landing. No middle ground would apparently do. Yet MacArthur had to accept that by the 10th of July, this middle ground was exactly what he was getting. The Northern Blitzkrieg had inexplicably not materialised, and Kim's forces, while they still posed a potent threat, were not attacking with the required concentration to push their way speedily southwards. Plan B thus required MacArthur to wait until the North had fulfilled the criteria of the other planned landing, and to wait until they had battered their tired army fruitlessly against Busan's reinforced line. An impatient man, MacArthur would rather have landed yesterday and ruined the northern advance as soon as he could, but experience taught him that, under the circumstances which presented themselves on the 10th of July 1950, landing at Inchon would have been pointless. MacArthur cancelled Blue Hearts that same day. What are we to make of this development? MacArthur's acceptance of the fact that a landing would not soon be made reflects the wider realisation spreading back to Washington that the Northern Advance, while confounding most American efforts to halt it, had not proceeded with as much devastating speed as had been expected. MacArthur, quite reasonably it had to be said, explained the delays in the Northern Blitzkrieg by pointing to the holding actions done by the American forces tasked with defending against their advance. Yet an assessment of the forces used demonstrates the fact that something else was at work to delay Kim's armies. By the 10th of July, only six understrength battalions of the 24th US Division were in place, making up a little over 5,000 men in total. This comparatively minuscule force would never have been able to withstand, let alone hold back, the far larger northern tide of tens of thousands, especially when one considers the fact that American soldiers much like their Republic of Korea peers, were criminally underprepared for the challenge posed by the North Korean tanks. 
Had Kim Il-sung's forces been allowed to, I do believe they would have advanced as one great mass of men towards Busan, cut that bridge head off, and forced both the Americans, Syngman Rhee, and the United Nations to reconsider their positions. The point was, as we learned last time, Kim Il-sung was plainly not allowed to advance in that way. What MacArthur never could have imagined was the possibility that Kim's own ally was working against him in the background to undermine his progress and prevent the kind of lightning strike which the Allies so feared. By the 10th of July, with the North Korean People's Army already feeling the effects of Stalin's deliberate sabotage, MacArthur did what any reasonable soldier would have done, and he put such inefficiencies down to the efforts of his men rather than the efforts of Kim's sinister Soviet ally. This indeed was the same process used by generations of historians since to explain the Northern slowdown, yet it has to be said that such arguments remain unconvincing in light of the evidence. The simple question is, how could MacArthur's 5,000 men, combined with the demoralised remnants of the Republic of Korea army, have possibly stopped the determined assault led by northern tanks, experienced soldiers, and a well-supplied, well-supported army several times its size? The simple answer is that it could not, but again we are faced with two choices. Either we believe that the US and the Republic of Korea forces, against all odds and against all military logic, managed to hold back this northern tide, or we believe the less conventional, more controversial argument, which looks at the realities of the northern political situation instead of the miracles of its military slowdown. Just as the explanations for Washington's anemic support of Rhee's government, or of the inexplicable Soviet absence from the UN Security Council, seem terminally unconvincing in light of the latest evidence, so too does the failure of the northern army to advance faster than it did seem bizarre unless we consider the very real problems which the Moscow-Pyongyang partnership posed. With Stalin always pulling the strings in North Korea, it was inconceivable that anything happened there without his approval or instruction, including the disorientating series of events for friend and foe alike, which led to Kim's forces squandering their opportunities and losing the full brunt of their advance. Just as certain developments were being learned of, though, the strategic situation of MacArthur's force changed. General Walker, MacArthur's man on the ground in Korea, informed MacArthur of the pace of events during the battle for Taejon, which was a critically important city, with its own maintained airstrip and several supply dumps. By the 22nd of July, Taejon had been evacuated and left to the North Koreans. This victory and the shattering advance which had accompanied it seemed to call into question MacArthur's initial claim that the North was advancing slowly, and it does muddy the waters somewhat when we try to claim any universal truths about the northern advance. The truth, of course, was far more complex. Kim's forces had seen their legs cut out from under them, but they succeeded in spite of their Soviet allies in advancing down the peninsula. That they succeeded even without the force initially on hand underlines the fact that, in the Battle of Taejon and in the other engagements up the Pusan, the Allies were on the back foot, and the northern military supremacy remained tarnished, but still intact. In the meantime, MacArthur had met with the Joint Chiefs in Tokyo on the 13th of July, and had developed a more concrete plan for the fallback position along the Pusan perimeter. Three lines, the first, outer and final lines, were established, with each increasing in urgency for the sake of the Allied defence in Korea. Perhaps because this contingency plan had been established, MacArthur felt confident and upbeat about the situation, but he waited for the implications of the Battle of Taejon to become clear before sending the following cable to Washington 
on the 19th of July. Our hold upon the southern part of Korea, MacArthur claimed, represents a secure base. When the North Korean People's Army had crashed the Han line, the way seemed entirely open and victory was within his grasp. Yet, as MacArthur continued, the enemy's plan and great opportunity depended upon the speed with which he could overrun South Korea once he had breached the Han River line and with overwhelming numbers and superior weapons temporarily shatter South Korean resistance. This chance has now been lost through the extraordinary speed with which the 8th Army has been deployed from Japan to stem his rush. Yes, even with the loss at Taejeon looming, MacArthur's optimism was still in place, and it was founded on the fact that a beachhead at Pusan was firmly established, and that Washington could expect to hold this line as it was a far better defensive position than the likes of a city like Taejeon. Confident in the ability of his men to stand and fight at Pusan, MacArthur attributed the slowdown of the North Korean People's Army to the fighting prowess of his own men and the supposed speed of their deployment. This was how MacArthur intended to explain to President Truman the reasons for an absence of a North Korean blitzkrieg, which Truman and Dean Acheson had so feared in the month immediately before the outbreak of the war. Armed with a clear supremacy of tanks, Truman may well have thought at odds that the North had been unable to bring this supremacy to bear against the beleaguered southern defenders, but he was willing to believe his commander, since MacArthur was, after all, better positioned to explain the North's uninspiring performance. Even with the loss of Taejeon looming, such casualties were apparently acceptable to both Truman and MacArthur, now that the Pusan perimeter was secure. What was more, Truman could now speak with Congress from the point of view of holding a strong position. It was unlikely that the Americans would be pushed into the sea, and thus it was possible to envision the next phase of his policy. Now that the northern attack could be survived, the political elements of NSC 68 could be secured. It was time to talk to Congress about contributing more money to the North Korean war effort. Before we look at that instance though, I just want to play you a little clip from November 1950, of a member of the government asking for funds. Because sometimes with me talking about it, it can be hard to believe that this actually happened. So here's a clip for you guys, and I'll resume the story afterwards. We've given a great deal of study to the problems confronted in devising taxes for dealing with profits arising from the defense program. Today I'm giving the committee only the major considerations which have developed from our studies. There is much more detailed information to be made available to the committee as it continues its work. The president has stated that the new tax should be designed to produce $4 billion in additional revenue. I believe our experience, our expenditures for military security require the additional taxation at this time. That was Secretary of the Treasury Snyder as he urged the House Ways and Means Committee to approve a 75% excess profits tax. A highly controversial matter in business circles. Alrighty, so on the 19th of July 1950, President Truman attempted to hammer into place the first of several policy planks. He had eagerly awaited not just the chance to present this element of NSC 68 to Congress, but also news of the security of the Allied position in Pusan. MacArthur had provided him with these assurances, and trusting his general's judgment in one of these few occasions, Truman felt content to make his political appeal. He sent a message to Congress announcing the strategy of containment which the Korean War would cement as American policy. 
Until this point, containment, as laid down in NSC 68, had been kept largely under wraps and was known as the unofficial policy by only a select few individuals in the administration, including Truman himself and his Secretary of State, Dean Acheson. Within this message, Truman addressed the immediate situation in Korea, the global ramifications of such a struggle, and, critically, the economic strength which would be needed to sustain a defensive democracy against the forces of aggression, be they in Korea or anywhere else. In a radio address to the nation that evening, Truman cited some claims from MacArthur's cable, pointing to the secure base in Pusan as evidence of the staying power of the Allied forces in Korea, but reasoning at the same time that these American soldiers needed support to continue in their defence. At the same time as well, we know that Truman was also speaking with his British allies and their Commonwealth peers to orchestrate an organised contribution of Allied soldiers to the war effort. This campaign would bear fruit by the 24th of July, when London signalled its willingness to support and ape the American approach, and its Commonwealth allies followed suit, with New Zealand making a point of beating the British to the punch, as we discovered to our amusement in episode 27. There was thus much work still to be done among his allies, but on the 19th of July Truman focused on the campaign at home. As a matter of basic moral principle, Truman claimed, The United States came to the support of the Republic of Korea when it was attacked. It would take time, Truman said, to slow down the forces of aggression, bring those forces to a halt and throw them back. However, giving a glimpse of what was to come, Truman also noted that We are determined to support the United Nations in its effort to restore peace and security to Korea, and its effort to assure the people of Korea an opportunity to choose their own form of government, free from coercion, as expressed in the General Assembly Resolutions of November 14, 1947 and December 12, 1948. By alluding to these UN resolutions, Truman was confirming his own support, and urging the support of the American political nation for their principles, the most notable being the unification of Korea under UN auspices. Truman continued, however, noting that the outbreak of war in Korea requires us to consider its implications for peace throughout the world. Thus, Truman moved on with an analysis of the strategic situation in Asia, in particularly with regards to Taiwan. For reasons of defending Japan, the Philippines and the French action in Vietnam, Truman said he had sent the United States' 7th Fleet to the Taiwan Straits to prevent any attack there in conjunction with that launched against Korea. As far as the situation in Taiwan stood, Truman wanted there to be no doubts. The present military neutralization of Taiwan, Truman said, is without prejudice to political questions affecting that island. With peace re-established, even the most complex political questions are susceptible to solution. Was this a nod to Mao Zedong? By claiming that even the most complex political questions are susceptible of solution, Truman could well have been indicating that diplomacy could have eased the Taiwan question and healed the rift between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Why would Truman have done this though, since if you believe my thesis, his true aim was to have escalated tensions between the United States and the Sino-Soviet alliance? How would easing tensions between the United States and China help him aggravate the communist bloc and thereafter justify greater defence expenditure to combat it? 
Indeed, while these were the end goals, we must also consider the fact that Truman acted with the immediate security concerns of Korea in mind and, at that point, it was considered essential that neither the Soviets nor the Chinese yet commit themselves to intervening in Korea on a grand scale. A massive Chinese advance into Korea now would empower the North Koreans and surely doom the outnumbered Pusan defenders. It was thus essential for the few precious months that the situation remained precarious for the United States on the ground that much was done to keep the Chinese intervention at bay. As we'll see in later episodes, Truman's sly remark was not the only act in America's arsenal. In early August, General MacArthur would travel to Taiwan to speak with Chiang Kai-shek in a bid to make use of some gunboat diplomacy. Usefully enough for Truman, he would be able to absolve himself of such an inflammatory act by the Supreme Allied Commander, but the reality was not that simple. Back to Truman's radio message to the nation and Congress on the 19th of July, though. Truman noted that the outbreak of war in the Far East necessarily increases the importance of the common strength of the free nations in other parts of the world, who must now increase and unify their common strength in order to deter a potential aggressor. This was surely a nod towards the assembling UN contingents which Washington had requested and which were slowly being prepared. Summing up what was needed, Truman pointed to a three-pronged strategy to contain the threats to the free world, saying, In the first place, to meet the situation in Korea, we shall need to send additional men, equipment and supplies to General MacArthur's command as rapidly as possible. In the second place, the world situation requires that we increase substantially the size and material support of our armed forces, over and above the increases which are needed in Korea. In the third place, we must assist the free nations associated with us in common defence to augment their military strength. As ambitious as this approach sounded, Truman wasn't finished. Nearing the end of the speech, the President came to the question of how such a policy would be supported and paid for at home. Truman said that he would be transmitting to Congress specific requests for appropriations and the amount of approximately $10 billion. And he urged the rapid reenactment of South Korea's Mutual Defense Assistance Program, which, if you'll recall, Dean Acheson's department had repeatedly ignored and delayed in the months leading up to the war. Whereas before it didn't suit the Truman administration to reinforce South Korea, now that the war was in play and the time was right, Truman urgently came to the defense of Rhee's government and claimed it was time to enact the Mutual Defense Assistance Program due for 1951. We must recognize, Truman said, that it will be necessary for a number of years to support continuing defense expenditures, including assistance to other nations, at a higher level than we had previously planned. With the core of his message laid down, Truman then launched into a campaign of justification, pointing to the strength of the American economy and concluding that it could certainly support the expense. The gauntlet, as Richard C. Thornton noted, had been laid down. On the 19th of July, barely three weeks after the outbreak of the Korean War, the President was already calling for the country's institutions and public to support a massively revamped commitment to reducing the potency of communism through the sheer application of military and especially economic force. This was the policy of containment outlined in speech, but more than that, it represented the first attempt by Truman to move forward with the, up to that point, unofficial policy of the administration, the principles of NSC 68. 
Rearmament and global containment would now be the bywords of the administration, as the unofficial secret policy became official and public, justified and presented for all the nation to see. It was politically and militarily risky considering the state of affairs then on the peninsula and the imminent collapse of Allied positions in Taejeon. Confident in the staying power of Pusan, though, and above all in the moral weight of his arguments in the Korean narrative, President Truman believed that he had made the first move towards transforming the United States into the arsenal of democracy which it would become. Subsequent events would prove that Truman's act was not folly, but of critical importance for the pursuit of the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the related conflicts that followed them. Here was the post-war president saying that America would stand up for democracy, in defiance of communist aggression and in league, if possible, with like-minded nations. It amounted to a declaration of war on communist expansion, and it invited all concerned Americans, be they politicians or mere citizens, to take part. For the next 40 years, Truman's statement here was to guide American foreign policy, through several triumphs and disasters, through countless proxy wars and diplomatic standoffs, and into the new world order which the Cold War housed. Having provided his president with the secure base and the platform from which this policy was launched, MacArthur would certainly have been pleased to note that Truman was determined to take a firm stand against communism. After committing American forces piecemeal, it now seemed that a solid contribution would be made, and this was something that the Supreme Commander welcomed. Such a renewed commitment was especially welcome in light of the circumstances on the peninsula where the battle for Taejeon had just been lost. Indeed, by the 23rd of July, MacArthur could note that the North Korean People's Army seemed to be advancing with gusto once more, and that General Walker's forces had been pushed back during the major engagements at Taejeon. With these observations in mind, he signalled his willingness to consider the amphibious landings again, but not until mid-September. By that time, MacArthur estimated, the Allies would possess an advantage in numbers, and would be better positioned to endure the North's assault on the Pusan perimeter. Reinforcements were arriving regularly by this point, with elements of the 25th Division joining those of the 24th, and MacArthur's force had grown to 18,000 US servicemen by the time he sent out the following cable to Washington on the 23rd of July. MacArthur noted on his plans for the future that Operation planned in mid-September is amphibious landing of a two-division corps in rear of enemy lines for purpose of enveloping and destroying enemy forces in conjunction with attack from South by 8th Army. I am firmly convinced that early and strong effort behind his front will sever his main lines of communication and enable us to deliver a decisive and crushing blow. The alternative is a frontal attack which can only result in a protracted and expensive campaign. In the space of less than a week, in July 1950, the military, economic and political aims of the United States were put forward for earnest consideration. Truman's request for the economic and political support of containment and MacArthur's explanation of the necessary military policy which would confound the North Korean People's Army were both critical pillars of American foreign policy and taken together they would come to define the Korean War. With the exhausted, undercut and beleaguered North forced to concentrate their wearied forces at the solidifying Pusan perimeter by late July, it was evident that the urgent helter-skelter undertaken by the Allies over that month had come to an end, as had, in the process, the prospect for Northern victory, at least any time soon. As Kim Il-sung himself put it in retrospect, 
The first error we committed was, instead of making a blitzkrieg and annihilating the enemy, we gave them enough time to regroup and increase their strength while retreating. Kim would never say it outright, of course, but through the use of the term we, the North Korean leader referred to the Soviet North Korean grouping as one. This was an implicit criticism of Stalin, and it signalled Kim's recognition of the fact that by late July 1950, the North had failed to achieve what had once been in their grasp, and thanks above all, not to his men's deficiencies or the enemy's prowess, but to his allies' sabotage. Stalin wasn't exactly endearing himself to his allies, and in the next episode, we'll examine the experience of his other significant ally in Asia, Mao Zedong. The story of the People's Republic of China during the heady months of July, August and September and then beyond, as the Allies advanced under the UN banner to the Chinese border, is one of fascinating failures in diplomacy, as much as it was a success in the deliberate policy of aggravation launched by Washington. Next time, we'll see how such issues were reconciled, but until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fells' coverage of the Korean War, episode 31. Thanks for listening as always, history friends, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.